Hey guys, thanks for joining me. Um, this week I'm doing cases of people that are more local to me and I'm really excited about it because the main point of this podcast was getting lesser known cases out there, but I'm going to talk about the bigger cases too because they usually have a lot of information. For instance, Tina Williamson is a lesser known person and I really don't have a lot of information on her, but I'm going to start with telling you her story. Tina was a 29-year-old mother of three when she disappeared four years ago. On April 10, 2015, Tina left home, her home in Toledo, Ohio, somewhere between 3 to 4 p.m. Now, she told her loved ones that she would be right back and took only her phone before getting into a car with three unnamed people. Okay, so she took only her phone. First, we need to talk about that because from Toledo to Bowling Green is a... 40 minute drive on a good day like good traffic good time of the day it can take up to an hour so I don't know what she was going to do that she would be right back but she was heading to Bowling Green with these people and these people in the car with Tina would have been the last people to see her alive but for some reason I can't find a single piece of information about them who they were what they look like or even what the car looked like now, the last person to hear from Tina was her boyfriend, and I reason to believe that he goes by the nickname Petey. Tina, Tina sent him a text around 11 p.m. saying that she was on her way home. And I have a couple of questions about this text. First, I need to tell you that Tina is considered to be missing under suspicious circumstances, which leads me to wonder if it was if it was even Tina who sent that text, or was it somebody who had done something to to or with Tina trying to cover up their tracks before even before anyone could even realize that she was missing? And why, if Tina was supposed to be right back, do they not even hear from her until 11 p.m.? That's not really a, an I'm going to be right back situation, right? That's like six or seven hours in between. And again, who were these people with her? Were they trusted friends or new friends? Did the family know these people? Like, literally, no description exists on them. And I've been all over the place trying to find information on her. Like I said, when it's a lesser-known case, there's really not a lot of information to be found. Now, like I said, this area is local to me. And one thing that I can tell you that I've looked up often is that Toledo, Ohio is ranked as the third largest city for sex trafficking in the whole country. And the state itself is the fifth largest in the country. Out of the people sex trafficked in this area, the largest demographic is 21 to 30 years old. olds, And Tina falls into this range, right? So that's one of the theories I have on what happened to her when she made this drive from Toledo to Bowling Green. But there's also a lot of heroin in Toledo. Now, it never mentions anywhere that Tina does drugs, but peer pressure is alive and well even when you're 21, 29 years old. It's there. And could it have gotten the best of Tina? Could something have happened to her and these people who were with her tried to cover it up? I don't know because from what I can tell, there hasn't been a lot of investigation into what has happened, what happened with these three people that she left home with. So you remember that I said that Tina is considered an endangered missing person. 
Well, that's because she disappeared under suspicious circumstances. Suspicious circumstances. I mean, she's obviously not going to run away without her purse because, you know, it takes money to survive when you run away. Like, you gotta eat and stuff still. And let's not forget that she, she's a stay-at-home mom of three children. And from all appearances, she's in a good, healthy relationship. And her mom said that she would visit her family every day, which means that she had strong connections. The kind of connections that people stick around for. You don't just walk away from a good family situation. So the theory that she ran away doesn't even exist, and it doesn't exist for investigators either. Now, it's been over four years, and Tina's still missing. Investigations into her disappearance are at a total standstill. Um, Tina has brown hair and blue eyes. She has praying hands tattooed on her left right calf and the name Petey on her right thigh. She also has a neck tattoo and ear piercings. Tina smoked Newport cigarettes when she went missing, if you have any information about Tina, call Crime Stoppers at 419-255-1111. Her name is Tina Williamson, and she was last seen April 10th, 2015. If her disappearance can teach us anything, it's that we must question everything and everyone, even those we think we can trust, whenever we feel uncomfortable. But even more so, we should always make our loved ones well aware of who we're with and where exactly we're going, as well as whether or not those plans change so that if we are ever in Tina's shoes, we will be that much closer to being found and going home because our goal is always to make it back home. All right, I'm Missing Fans. Next, we're going to talk about the Skelton family. Okay, so Tina was short, and like I said, that's because when it's a lesser-known missing persons case, it's really hard to get information on those. But the Skelton family, I have quite a bit of information for you. Now, if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume that you're a true crime fanatic who has read, watched, and listened to a ton of crime-related material. While doing so, you've always asked yourself one question. Why? What makes these people snap and do the terrible, unthinkable? unthinkable things that they do. Usually, I can't tell you about the suspects in a missing persons case, but this time, it's different. We have a suspect. In fact, we have somebody who admits to making the victims in our story disappear. And our story first began because John Skelton was having a mental break. He, like all of us, probably had an idea of the perfect family with the white picket fence and the nice house and even the dog. And that came crashing down around him when he and his wife, Tanya, got became separated. He desperately wanted Tanya to reunite with him and put their family of five back together, but she wasn't having it. Now, she may have considered it at one point. But one day in September probably definitely ruined any chances that they had because John pulled a stunt, a big stunt. That was only the beginning of this woman's nightmare. The Skeleton family lived in Morency, Michigan in 2010. That year, Tanner, the youngest brother, who was just five years old at the time, was starting school. He was entering his first year of football and he was so excited to play. He was following in the footsteps of his older brothers, nine-year-old Andrew and seven-year-old Alexander. 
As a group, they were smart, happy, and active, usually seen playing around their neighborhood in the small town where they were growing up. If they were affected by their parents' divorce, it didn't really show in these kids. For the most part, besides the occasional fighting, it seemed like the parents kept their lives as normal as possible despite their separation. Like, they were both seeing the boys pretty regularly, and from what I can tell, the boys really showed no signs of being in distress at all during this whole situation. Tanya was divorcing Don on claims that he had been secluding himself from the family and that makes sense because later in the story we learned that john was having a mental health crisis and maybe the issues were deeper than a mental health crisis maybe they were more sinister but we really don't know because john won't tell us anything We talk all the time about moms who deal with postpartum depression and what the stressors of life cause them to do when they finally collapse. But in this case, it's the father who can't deal. It's the father who snaps and leaves the whole nation holding their breaths for eight years now, waiting on him to tell the truth. Now, the date is September 13th, 2010, and Tanya Skelton has filed for divorce. John has been begging to get back together with her. This is Tanya's last stand. She wants him to leave her alone and let her move on so that they can both go about living their lives and focusing on co-parenting these three boys. After Tanya drops Tanner, Alexander, and Andrew off at school that morning, John does something that I think is his first attempt to really punish Tanya for the separation and for filing for the divorce. Without giving her any notification, any warning at all, like there's literally no conversation about this, he signs the boys out of school and tells their staff that they're going on vacation. And the staff is totally confused. They're like, okay, well, Tanya just dropped them off. So they call her and ask what's going on. Now, you have to remember at this time, there's no custody agreement. They're both just sharing the boys and everything seems to be going fine. All Tanya can really do is contact her attorney and see what has to be done so she can stop John from taking the boys wherever they're going. He, The attorney tells her to go and file for emergency custody, something that Tanya is rewarded. But before John can be given the order, now he's still in Michigan when this order is written, he's able to get the two oldest sons into the van and he takes off with Andrew and Alexander leaving Tanner with Tanya the while he takes the other two boys to Jacksonville Florida where his parents live Tanya follows them and despite her being granted emergency custody she has to take John to court in Florida the judge tells the parents the two of you are going to have to join custody of the kids until you get back to Michigan. Now, once you're there, the emergency custody order that Tanya was rewarded goes back into effect. So they head back to Michigan, and back in Morency, the parents are still living in the same neighborhood. Tanya's staying in a house just a couple of streets over from where she lived with John, and I'm thinking that's because she wants the boys to go to the same school that they've been going to. And John is still living in the other house the house that they were all living in together that's still where john is in fact 
Despite his attempt to take off with the children, Tanya has even allowed John to continue seeing the three boys and have them over at the house overnight on a regular basis. And for a month, this is going fine. Despite his continued attempts to fix the marriage and occasional arguments, everything is running smoothly. And we have to give Tanya props here. I mean, John has gone out of his way to make her life a living hell. And despite him doing so, she's still giving him a chance to be a father. She's still letting them see the boys. She has full custody of the boys and had every opportunity to rip them away from John like he tried to do by taking them to Florida. And she wasn't looking to do that. She wasn't trying to punish him. She was trying to do what was best for her boys And that's what real mothers do. She thought the boys deserved a father, and so she kept letting them see their father. But had she known what was going to come, she probably would have made a totally different decision. She probably would have taken those boys, and she would have packed them up and ran as far away as she could get from John. Because John Skelton was about to prove that he wasn't a father or even a man. He was just a manipulative little boy who enjoyed playing games with the minds of a whole nation and toying with the lives of his own sons. Now, we get to Thanksgiving. That's a time that I love. Since marrying my husband, I get to have like a super laid back lunch with my family on Thanksgiving Day and then a formal dinner with his family that night. And I don't think I knew how much I loved wine until my first Thanksgiving dinner at his family's place. That's what Thanksgiving is about, right? Family. Unless it's a difficult year, then it might be about the wine. It's here or there. Wine or family. One of the two. Thanksgiving's all about that. But for Tanya, it would become this day that her sons went missing. Thanksgiving would turn into a literal nightmare for her because that was the last day that her boys were seen alive. Okay, so now we're at Thanksgiving Day. Now, because Tanya was allowing John to spend time with the boys, she, of course, allowed him to see the boys for Thanksgiving. He would be be spending Thanksgiving Day, which was November 25th, 2010, with them, and then Tanya would get them at 3 p.m. the next day, so Black Friday, which was November 26th, 2010. Things seemed to be going pretty normal. From what I hear, John cooked the boys their favorite dinners that night. They got a cake. The neighbors saw the kids playing out in the yard. And John even calls Tanya that night, again, to talk to her about getting back together. And she can hear Tanner, Alexander, and Andrew playing in the background. I think that was actually John giving Tanya one last chance to give in to him. Because my theory is that In John's mind, she had costed him everything. On top of him losing out on work as a long-haul truck driver, his wife was divorcing him, and she had gotten custody of their children. Not to mention, John already had a daughter from a previous marriage and had spent some time in jail in 2009 for not paying his child support. So he obviously wasn't good at being the father in a divorced parent situation. His life was a mess, and I think that Tanya, in his mind, was the only one who could help him fix it. Like, that's what he had decided. It was up to her, 
And if she didn't, John would just have to hurt her the only way that he could with their sons. When Tanya's boys weren't dropped off to her by 3 p.m. on November 26, 2010, the Friday after Thanksgiving, the last day that the brothers were seen alive, she hopped onto Facebook after failing to reach John. She had called him. He wasn't answering. Now she's going on Facebook to see if she can find out what's going on and saw a post on there that read, May God and Tanya forgive me. That was the last post that John had made. And that was it. In a panic, she called 911 and she would begin, and so would begin the many tall tales of John Skelton. This is where the lies start and they just keep on coming. The first lie was Joanne Taylor. I would love to introduce you to her and whoever she is, but we can't because she seemingly doesn't exist. Authorities have done everything to find her because John claimed that she was the person who had the boys. He gave the boys to her so that he could so that she could take care of them while he committed suicide. Yes, John claimed that Joanne, a good friend of his, had his sons, but he couldn't even provide the authorities with a phone number much less any information about where she lived and where the sons would would be. Are you mind-boggled yet? Because if you're not, we're going to take you a little bit further down this road of John's lies. We don't have time for all of them, but we can travel a little bit into the, the twisted map that John was leading everyone down that literally led to nowhere. We know so little about the actual disappearance of these three small boys, but... That lie about Joanne is just the first of many that John has told in the past eight going on nine years. Nothing he said has ever led to his children. He's told so many lies, in fact, that Tanya, their own mother, who was granted a divorce from John finally in 2011, no longer even believes her sons are alive. She says she knows in her heart that John killed them on Thanksgiving night. And maybe that's because when cops went through his computer right after they found out the boys were missing, looking for information on this Joanne character, they found that he had been searching things like, how do you break somebody's neck? And what do you use to poison somebody? Maybe this is because John was trying to kill himself and he was looking for the right way to do it. Or maybe it's because Tanya is right. Maybe John killed all three of his own children out of nothing but spite for their mother and her refusal to get back with him. I really think this is all a punishment for Tanya. So after sending authorities on this wild goose chase for Joanne, they end up spending like three hours looking at a nearby campground where they discover that John's cell phone had pinged off of towers nearby. So they spent three hours looking here for the kids. The campground is closed. There's no one there. So if John had been there, no one would have known. But they don't. They come out of that search empty-handed. Like, there's nothing. No evidence is found there. And then they also get sent to Amish country. So there's a large Amish community in Ohio and Michigan. 
And the authorities went there thinking that maybe John, like, dropped him off with one of the families because that's what John said he did. He said he dropped him off with one of the Amish families. But the Amish were like, okay, we don't have the television or the internet, but we're not, like, under rocks. We do read the newspaper, and we know all about these boys. And if they were with any of us, we would have called the police. Like, we're not total, total desolate. Like, we keep up on some things. I mean, so authorities have even been as far as Montana searching for these boys to rule out some remains that were found of, like, smaller children. Tips have led them everywhere. Tips have been pouring in all no- over the nation for eight years. Everyone knows about this case. John even tried to say that he had the boys in an underground shelter which is how he was convicted of unlawful imprisonment and sentenced 10 to 15 years in prison. John agreed to plea no contest to the unlawful imprisonment charges in exchange for three counts of kidnapping, a charge that would mean life in prison if John had been convicted of kidnapping. So he got those charges dropped and... Then he went with this um, unlawful imprisonment charge because he had told authorities that he had the boys kept in some like underground shelter or something like that. Now, the guidelines for this usually suggest four to six years in jail, but the judge, um, Circuit Judge Noe, gave John 10 to 15 years, calling his lies ridiculous and essentially calling John himself pathetic for never coming out with the truth and blaming everyone else for whatever he did to his children. The judge tried to get John to disclose the whereabouts of the three boys over and over again, and each time, John would claim that he sent the boys to some underground group to keep them safe from their mother. That's right. John tried to accuse Tanya, a woman he was begging to get back with him on the day that his boys were last seen of abusing his children. He bring, brought up some old charges that she had back before they got married when he was when she was in her first marriage. Apparently there were some charges about her sleeping with a 14-year-old boy. And while this is appalling, it had nothing to do with her three children. She said she never laid a hand on them. And honestly, I believe her. Like I said, I really think John's whole intention here was punishing Tanya for what he believed she did to him and it had nothing to do with what she did to her children. He made it seem like he had no choice but to send these boys away and even said that this only happened because the system failed him by not granting him custody of his children. He said that sending him them to this underground group was the only way to make him safe and he cried every day and he totally regretted what he did to his children and blah 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 because in eight years you still can't tell anyone where these kids are throughout this entire 2011 trial that sent john to prison tanya refused to call john her son's father only addressing him by his name or as the suspect and i couldn't agree with her more John doesn't deserve that title because any man who can rip three innocent young boys away from their lives, the only home that they had never ever known and their loved ones is complete trash. We don't know what happened to Tanner, Alexander, and Andrew. John knows and if they're still alive, they know and maybe a few select others know, but 
as of right now, the nation and authorities and their own mother are still in the dark. Earlier this month, authorities were searching in a pond in Ohio. They had cadaver dogs and a scanner there looking in the pond for the boy's remains. Due to a tip that came in, an unknown woman said back on November 26, 2010, early in the morning, she saw a man who looked like John and a van that matched the description of his um, out here by this lake, parked right on the highway. But the search led to no results. The boys still weren't found. Another tip with no results. A really naive part of me hopes that these brothers are still alive and that one day they'll get to come out and they'll get to tell the whole story of what happened to them and they'll get that survivor's walk, that amazing survivor's walk that every person that goes through this deserves. Normally, I try to look for lessons in these missing person cases. I spend a lot of time researching them and I learn a lot of information, but I can't find anything here. Tanya did everything right. She fought to protect her children. She got custody of them. And even when she won that custody of them, she didn't keep them away from John. She thought she was doing the right thing. She thought her boys deserved their father. No matter how she felt about them, she wasn't going to punish her sons for how she felt about John, and she wasn't going to keep John away from his children. The thing is, though, that John Skelton didn't deserve his sons. They were too good for him. Because if he valued them at all, this never would have happened. The investigation into the circumstances of Tanner, Alexander, and Andrew Skelton is still open. Tanner was five. Alexander was seven, and Andrew was nine. If you want to see age-progressed photos of them where they would be now eight years later, you can find those online, and they're updated regularly. This case still draws a lot of attention for being eight years old, and they still get a lot of tips coming in, and they try to follow everyone that seems like it could be a good tip. Like I told you, just around May 2nd, they were out looking for these boys at a pond, following a tip that someone had just called in saying that they had saw John and the van out there by this pond eight years earlier. And again, it led to nothing, but they still follow it and they still try to follow John Skelton's word and the useless tips that he gives in this jagged jigsaw puzzle that he's created in the search for finding these boys. And John just continues and continues to lie there. He won't tell the truth about where these boys are for whatever reason. This is one of the things where you try to figure out what, why people do what they do. And in this case, I just can't. So if I could say one thing to you, I'm going to take it from the mental health angle. If you're struggling with mental health issues, Please ask for help before you get to the point of hurting yourself or another or doing something like this. Like, it's terrible. You're, the people hurt in this scenario. There's just so many and for no reason. So even if it terrifies you, please ask for help. Reach out because mental health isn't what issues aren't what they used to be. You can speak up about them and find all types of support now. And if... You're a loved one of somebody who seems to be struggling with a mental health crisis. 
don't be too timid to say anything. Don't ignore it. Like, call them out because they need someone to notice. Like, they're dying for someone to notice. And most of the time, all they're getting is, like, the silence. Like, people think it's too awkward to say something. Don't think it's too awkward. You could literally be saving someone's life if you just say one thing. Like, I'm here for you. We can get through this together. What do you need me to do? Um, there's also hotlines you can call. There's all kinds of resources available for people. Even if you don't want to call a counselor, the suicide line is available and it's free. There's like always someone there, even when you think there isn't. The last thing I'm going to mention to you guys before I get out of here today is the Patreon. I'm Missing the Podcast has a Patreon. You can find it on Patreon. I like saying the word Patreon, apparently. And for as little as $5 a month, you can help support this podcast and what I'm doing by becoming a fan and gaining access to a ton of bonus content exclusively made for my patrons. But don't worry, Thursday's episodes will always be free to my fans as long as I'm making I'm Missing the Podcast. You're amazing for listening, and please join me next week when we delve into another missing persons case. Until then, if you have any information on Tina Williamson, or you think you know anything about Tanner, Andrew, and Alexander, it never hurts to call it in. Even if it's something small, never hurts to call it in. Your lead could be the lead that gets these people found. Thanks, guys. I'll see you again on Thursday.